as we come to our third Sunday in Advent, we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 10, as we think on that theme of joy coming into the world at Christmas time. Hebrews 10, and we'll read from verses 1 through to 18. And there we read, For since the law was, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord, and we ask his blessing upon us this morning as we read it together. And as we do so, we're going to pray, not just for ourselves, but also for our world. So let's join together in prayer. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for your Word this morning. And Lord, we do ask that you would clarify it in our minds, that you would impress upon us just how wonderful these truths are. And Lord God, as we look to the coming week and indeed the rest of the run-up to Christmas, Lord, we ask that you would bless us with a real sense of the joy of this season. Lord God, we ask all this in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that for most of us, for all of us, Christmas is a time of joy in many different ways, for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's in all sorts of small ways. We just enjoy the experience of the run-up to Christmas with all of the festivities that go on and all of the preparation that's involved in that, looking forward to the day when you can perhaps be together with family or whatever it might be that you do 
on Christmas Day. There is, for kids, undoubtedly a tremendous sense of joy and of excitement and expectation on the run-up to Christmas. And by and large, I would like to say the thought behind that is that they love being with their family and they love spending time with parents and grandparents and so on. I rather suspect it's more the thought of gifts arriving um, at some point on Christmas Day. But let's be optimistic and say it's the whole experience uh, that they enjoy. Christmas is about joy. And there are all sorts of things that we do throughout the year, whether it be at Christmas time or at Easter or harvest or whatever, that, that we've brought in elements from the secular world that really have no place in, in our celebrations uh, throughout the year as a Christian people, as a church. But joy at Christmas time is definitely something that we should experience. It's something that we should have as a defining characteristic of what we do. And I know that Christmas can be a very difficult time for people, especially for those folks who are apart from family, for whatever reason, those folks who maybe don't have that many people around them and won't be doing an awful lot. Christmas can be tremendously lonely, and yet, for Christian people, however challenging our circumstances may be, there is always to be an undercurrent, that note of joy that runs through this season because of the nature of Christmas, what it is fundamentally all about. When we talk about Christmas time and about joy, we find that it can be rooted in many things, but it must be rooted in one core truth, one great reality that we celebrate at this time more than any other throughout the year, and that is that Jesus has come into the world. Now again, we, we know that. This is something that we say all the time. The question really is, why? It's not a question we're really supposed to ask as Christians. We're all just supposed to know the answer to that. But, but it's good for us to ask that question. Why should Christmas be a time of joy? Almost regardless of our circumstances. Ultimately, in this passage in Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is a celebration of the coming of Jesus into the world. And the writer of Hebrews goes on at tremendous lengths, looking at all the different facets, all the different elements of what Jesus does when he comes into the world. And the whole letter is a great celebration of Jesus. In actual fact, I think the book of Hebrews is a sermon that's preached, that's been written down for us about Jesus uh, for all sorts of different reasons, none of which are particularly important this morning. But I, I think that's why the book of Hebrews comes across the way that it does. It's something that is supposed to be spoken. It is an, an exhortation, an encouragement to God's people. And in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, we have perhaps some complicated thoughts strung together, but which communicate one very simple truth, that Jesus has come at Christmas time into the world to take away our sin. And we find in verses 1 through to 10, this truth expressed. The writer of Hebrews talks about all sorts of things. He talks about law and sacrifices. He talks about the old order of things and the new order of things that has come. And Jesus sits in the middle of it all somewhere. But he's expressing this great truth that sin is mankind's greatest problem. 
And one way or another, it's what every world religion strives to deal with. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Christianity, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Islam, or Judaism, or atheism, if we want to look at it that way. Every system of belief, every faith in the world, is striving to address this problem of sin. Now, they almost certainly won't call it sin. There'll be all sorts of different words for it, but they are striving to deal with the physical and moral and spiritual shortcomings and failures of men and women. And they're trying to order society in such a way that all of those failings are diminished and all of the strengths are enhanced and are given a greater place. Now the problem is that all those other religions go straight to men and women, focus upon us, and try and find some way of addressing the problem by just making us a bit better, by brushing us up, by cleaning us off through our own strength, our own ability, our own ingenuity, through our own societal structure and order, whatever that may happen to look like. And God's made it clear throughout the Bible that will never, ever work. We are never able to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It simply isn't possible. For as quickly as we clean off one area of our life, we realize the rag we've been using is filthy and we're just smearing the dirt around more than ever before. And in the Old Testament, we find to address this problem of sin, God speaks to Israel and gives them a system of sacrifices and laws that point to him as the only means of help. Because God says to them, the only way you can truly be helped is by having someone from outside who isn't covered in all of that muck, isn't struggling in all of that uh, mire of sin to lift you out, to clean you off. One who is already clean, who can clean you and help you to live a different kind of life. And the only one who qualifies, the only one who exists outside of that world of sin is God. But as the writer of Hebrews points out, the Old Covenant could never deal with the problem at its root. It could only point out that there is a problem and then direct us towards the solution. Reorientate people around to see where the solution to the problem was. But it couldn't ever do anything to move us from one place to the other. It's in a sense, a little bit like the medication that we take for all sorts of things like headaches. We take paracetamol or or aspirin for headaches. You take painkillers for a headache. But very often, paracetamol, for example, doesn't really address the problem that's causing the headache. It masks the pain, but once the paracetamol wears off, the headache just comes back again. Or if you have a cold or a cough, and this season is going to be rife with them, uh, then you, you take some kind of remedy, and it helps the symptoms abate for a while, but then they all come back once that medication's worn off because they can't take away the root of the problem. They just help us to cope with it for a certain length of time. And there is a sense in which, in the Old Covenant, with all of the laws and sacrifices, they help deal with the effect for a while. They help the symptoms abate. They cleanse the individuals from unrighteousness for a time. But the problem is, it all comes back. And so the sacrifices have to be made year on year on year. 
And for the people who live within the sphere of Jerusalem, they are constantly going to the temple to make sacrifices for all sorts of, uh, for all sorts of infringements on God's law. What's needed is something that deals with the actual root cause, which is our nature. It's something broken inside that needs to be taken out. The heart needs to be changed, transformed. And that's what we find Jesus doing, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. He comes not to deal with the effects, not to kind of clean up the damage that we cause, but to actually deal with the heart that leads you to do the damage in the first place. God wants something more than just people who look sort of right for a while. He wants people to actually be right and to be with him, which is what they're made for. And the blood of bulls and goats, the writer of Hebrews says, just isn't going to cut it. It's not good enough. He says God doesn't particularly like those sacrifices. Not because they're bad. He's asked his people to make them, but, but because they don't ever do enough for them. They are not sufficient to save them. They are only sufficient to point them towards the one who can save them. That final solution to our problem that God brings about. Jesus is sent as a sacrifice that doesn't remove the symptoms of sin for a while. He actually takes sin away. He solves the problem. He deals with the root. And he does it by becoming like us, a human. He dies in our place on the cross, and that is why we celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Not just because it's a nice thing. We met with some friends yesterday, and we had a, a great time with them. They've just not long had a baby, and it's that experience that you have as a parent when you've had kids, and you think, we're, we're fine with, with the kids that we've got, we're not going to have any more, and then you see one, and you think, babies really are amazing. They really are beautiful, and they're sweet, and it's great to be with them and hold them, and then you realize after a while when they start getting hungry and they need to sleep and everything else, you realize, no, we're, we are fine with the, the kids that we've got. Let's, it's nice to have them for a while. And then you hand them back and you let the parents deal with them uh, and all the problems and everything else. But, but it is nice to celebrate a baby being born. And it's lovely. And there is a sense in which so much of the, the pictures and the imagery around Christmas time that we see all the time is deliberately sweet in that sense. And it's unfortunate that it's become a little bit too cutesy and homely looking because that is what it's just turned into for us. It's a baby being born, and who doesn't like that? The birth of Jesus into the world is wonderful because it's a baby being born. But it's wonderful on a whole other level because of what Jesus is coming to do. Because without what he came to do, it's just another baby being born. And there's been billions of them. We celebrate this amazing event because Jesus is able to free us from slavery to sin and death because he is the sinless one. He's God in the flesh. He's not encumbered by sin. He is not enslaved to it. And so when he dies on the cross, he's not dying for his own sins. He's able to die for other people's sins, for our sins. And so when we confess them to him and ask for his forgiveness, we are told that our sins are placed upon him in the picture of the Old Testament sacrifice where the sins of the people are pronounced upon the, the innocent animal and it is slaughtered in the people's place. And Jesus dies. 
And Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins, have our sins placed upon him and die, and then rise to new life to show that they've been successfully paid for, that all of God's wrath has been spent for those sins. We find that he then walks with us every single day because he can care for us and support us in this life in a way that nobody else can. Every other religion has great leaders. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, Islam or Mormonism or you're talking about Hinduism or uh, whatever it might be, Buddhism. They all have great leaders in their uh, system of faith. But none of those leaders can actually do anything to help you. Because they're either dead and gone, or they are completely other. They are not human in any sense. They are utterly alien to us, and so are never able to understand. They're never able to walk with us, support us, and say, I know what it's like. And yet, in Jesus, we have somebody who goes beyond a great leader, a guru, a spiritual advisor, in a way that that no other religion can ever claim. He is able to say completely, I know what it's like to experience that temptation. I know what it's like to experience grief and loss and sadness and joy and excitement and anticipation and and tiredness and hunger. I know what it's like and how hard it is for you to follow because you're tired and hungry or sad. And yet I managed follow in that way perfectly and I will lead you in that way because of what I've done to you. I've taken out your heart of stone and I've given you a heart of flesh. And because I know what it's like and because I know what I've done, I can show you the way. You follow. And the upshot of all of this is that as people who are called out by God to be forgiven and set apart for Him, we can now finally be set apart to serve Him forever. We don't need to be constantly washed clean so that we're acceptable, so that our worship works, so that our prayers work, if that makes any sense. That we're somehow sort of slipping in and out of being qualified to pray to God. That's not how it goes. We have been finally and fully washed clean so that we are always able to come to God in prayer. We are always able to lift our voices to Him in song. We are always able to serve Him in the world, however we feel, however hard or easy our lives happen to be at that time, because the qualification has already been given to us by what Jesus has done in the past. We'll never be removed from that life from God's life-giving and sustaining presence. Never, ever, not even death can do that. God will constantly be calling us to worship Him with everything that we do and say and think and constantly equipping us to engage in that worship every single day. That is how good a sacrifice Jesus was for you. He made that possible. Jesus comes to free us from our sin, and he comes to change our world, verses 11 through 14 tell us. As the writer goes on, he says, Jesus is a sacrifice that is so perfect, so complete, so powerful, it only needs to be made once, unlike all the repeated Old Testament sacrifices. And as a further indicator of how powerful it is, we see that after Jesus has made a sacrifice, he sits down at his Father's right hand on his throne and waits. Now, this is, this is a picture that is being painted. I don't think this is a 
physical reality because elsewhere we read that Jesus is interceding before the Father for each one of us. I don't think Jesus is just sitting twiddling his thumbs till the end of history and it all just works itself out. Jesus is daily active in his created world. That's undeniable. But the picture here comes from uh, the Psalm, Psalm 110, where we have this idea that the king has done everything that needs to be done and now all that needs to happen is for all of his work to just roll itself out in creation. The end is already assured, the victory already won, and so it's a foregone conclusion. He just needs to wait. And that's very much the image that we are to have as we think about our lives in this world. Because for all that we know, perhaps, that we have been set free from sin, we understand that it is incredibly hard to actually live in light of that, isn't it? I mean, quite aside from the lingering effects of sin in our own hearts that lead us astray and help us succumb to temptation when we don't even want to, but we still do, we have this whole world around us that is orientated in the opposite direction to God and is always saying, implicitly as well as explicitly, come this way. This is much better. This is a far more sensible way to live. This is far more fulfilling and satisfying and whatever it might be. And it's a constant draw on our attention. And it makes it very hard to live the Christian life. And it's already tough enough as it is without all of that. So how on earth do we live as a Christian people in the midst of this whole world of temptation and difficulty? Well, in the end, we do this recognizing That Jesus hasn't just saved me as as an individual. He has died and made a perfect sacrifice so that the whole world is slowly being conquered by him. It's not an image that we like to use anymore because we're a country with an imperial colonial history and we're rather ashamed of that at this present age for various reasons. And we don't like the idea of Jesus being a conquering king. We're a bit wary about language like conquering. And yet that is entirely the language of Scripture. Jesus is conquering this world. He is, in a sense, colonizing this world by moving into areas and having his people um, saved and having that community grow and expand and exert its influence wherever it may happen to be. And it cannot be denied that he is the king. And this is really what it all boils down to. Jesus has come to change our world to ensure that the whole world acknowledges his kingship, whether they love him or whether they hate him. Which is a strange thing. We would love it if everyone in the world knew and loved Jesus, and yet we know that is not the reality of our world. Many people don't, and there are many people we have known over the course of our lives who have died and want nothing to do with Jesus and the Christian faith. And that's a terrible tragedy, and it grieves us deeply. But what this is talking about is that even that individual will not be able to do anything other than say, he's the king. I might not love him, I might not want to follow him, but he's still the king. In a sense, we know that present reality today. I don't know if you are a staunch royalist or a ferocious republican, regardless of whether you are or you aren't, you still have a queen for the time being. It doesn't matter whether you like her, whether you think she has any value, whether you think it's just a huge drain on our nation's economy for no real benefit, it makes no difference. She's still your queen. And you still owe her your allegiance because she is your sovereign. And this isn't language we use anymore, but it's, it's true. 
It used to be that if you denied that and lived your life in a way that denied that, that was treason, and you'd be put to death for that. Now, we're no longer executing people for treason anymore, and I think that's probably a good thing. But, but it's still treason. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that he will have his hold, his sway over the world, to such a degree that even his worst enemies cannot deny that he exists and that he is king for all that they don't like him and want to rebel against him. As well as all those people who gladly bow before him and serve him as their sovereign Lord. Jesus' sacrifice has changed our world fundamentally and it will be brought into right understanding one way or the other. And this should give us tremendous encouragement. Because like I said, it's hard to live the consistent Christian life in a world that leads us constantly away from God uh, instead of towards Him. But as we grow and mature by God's grace in our lives, after Christ saves us, He will also transform the world around us so that we're able to live out this kind of life. Now we might look at that and think, no. Because we look at the world and, and Livingston is not a Christian community with the best will in the world. It just isn't. In fact, it doesn't matter how you look at Ladywell, Livingston, West Lothian, the UK, whether we think it had a Christian history or not, it makes no difference. It is not now a Christian place. And so how can this be true? How can Christ be conquering the world? Surely this must mean something else, but it doesn't. There are two realities here that I think are helpful for us to consider. And the first is that when God saved you, he didn't save you as an individual because you're here. Granted, if you're watching online, you're not. But you're a part of a Christian community. There is a, 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 a small or perhaps a large enclave of God's family that you belong to, that you're connected to, that you meet with week by week and you worship with all the time. God has changed this little bit of the world that you live in. And he's filled it with all sorts of other people who are all different but are like you and that you're forgiven by Christ. You are saved so that you are able to walk in the Christian life. So that you're able to live out the faith that you have and you're able to do it because your brother or sister sitting next to you is supporting you and is praying for you and is doing all sorts of things to make sure that you get to tomorrow and you keep running the race. You keep doing what's right. And sometimes that means saying to you, you've done something wrong. And you need to go the other way. And it can be hard for us to take that, but it's necessary. And that's the nature of the world around us. Christ has changed your world and has put you in it with a bunch of other people who are part of his family. Which is why the church is so important. It's why worshipping together Sunday by Sunday is so vital to the life of the church. Serving together week by week is vital because that is where this happens. So you're able to live out your life. Whether you feel you need someone else or not, doesn't matter if you do, because you've been saved into the church, and that's what the church is for. But there is also a reality in which we do see Christ slowly conquering the world around us. We live in a nation that has universal health care, that has universal education, where human rights are universal, and none of those things came from a secular state. None of them. They all came because of the presence of God's people in this country, who viewed it as utterly essential that all people are made in the image of God, whether they're Christians or not, makes no difference. We're all made in the image of God, and they they're all have value and worth and rights as a result. That we are all called to read Scripture, and so the very 
bare minimum level of education we need to get us to do that should be universal for all people. So we can all be disciples of Christ. That we care for one another and so we feed the hungry and house the homeless and when people are injured and sick and can't afford to pay for health care then we all group together and, and do that. That has all been birthed out of a Christian worldview. And that's not to say that, that kind, some of these things don't exist in other parts of the world but all of these things have come out of this country because of our Christian heritage. And so you can see God transforming the world around us. Now, we've handed all these things over to a secular state and and they're perhaps not going in the direction that we want them to because of that. But we cannot deny the presence of God and the fact that it has transformed the world in which we live. That used to be one of the reasons why we were so proud to be where we were from. Because look at all the things that God has done in our midst where we care for one another and support one another and educate one another and do all of these things. You seem to be ashamed of that today. I don't know why. But this is something that we should be filled with joy about. And it can be hard for us to see it because it's ordinary. And the ordinary isn't something to celebrate. But it should be celebrated. You live in a world that has been and is being transformed by Jesus every single day. And it's being done by other people but it's also being done by you. Which also gives us not just a sense of joy in that, isn't it great someone's done all these amazing things for me? It gives me a sense of joy that I actually have something to contribute to this world, to this society. I make it a little bit more like the kingdom God wants it to be than it was yesterday. And it might be really small in our eyes, really insignificant, and yet it is still part of that work. And part of what we were made to do as human beings was to work for God's glory. And that's exactly what God is doing. It should give us great joy to know we have purpose, however small and insignificant we might feel. Because God is changing the world in Christ through his church. Jesus has come to set us free from sin. He's come to change our world. And in the end of the passage in 15 through to 18, we find that he's come to make us completely free. I know sometimes, often we feel ill-equipped to deal with things, especially when we go through hard times. We feel overwhelmed, we don't know where to turn, don't know what to do, don't know what to say, don't know what to think sometimes. We don't feel equipped sometimes to spread the gospel and we want to see sinners saved, we just don't know what to do. Sometimes when it comes to church life, we just, we're just not sure what we're doing. Why are we here? I'm singing these words, but do I mean them? I, I just, I don't know. We're often not as mature as we would like to be. And we feel that maybe we never will be. But we really do have everything we need in Jesus' sacrifice in our place. We really do. One of the things that you will find if you speak to any Bible college graduate, especially when they've gone into ministry, either in a local church or as a missionary, is that Bible college didn't train me in almost any way whatsoever to deal with all the stuff that you need to deal with on an average week in ministry. And that's not anything negative about Bible colleges. Bible college can't. In the same way that no medical school can train a surgeon to to know what it's like to be up to your elbows in somebody trying to fix them, trying to keep them alive. There is nothing that can prepare you for that apart from actually doing it, which is why in medical school you, you do practical things as well as just go through the textbooks and learn all the bits of the body and how it all works. 
You have to actually learn by doing, and that's the same in ministry, it's the same in any job you have ever had. You have to actually do the job. You can't learn it all from a book. It's not possible. Well, we are given a full set of tools by Jesus. He says he will write his law on our hearts and in our minds so that we will always have the right things to help us if we will use them. That doesn't mean he's given us all the answers, but he's given us what we need to know where to go to find the answers. And this is a wonderful reality. I know sometimes we just want Jesus to tell us what to do. I know that. But he's not helping you when he does that. Which is why he doesn't, by the way. What he does is he constantly teaches us to rely upon him so that it doesn't matter what circumstances we face, we always know where to turn. That doesn't mean we're always going to know what the right thing is. Sometimes, along with Luke, when he writes his gospel, we just have to say, Luke, I prayed, I want to do what's glorifying to God, and this seems like a good thing to do. I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to do this thing that seems like the best possible thing I can do. And in the end, sometimes we'll get that right and sometimes we'll get that wrong. But here's what's wonderful. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we will always be forgiven for the mistakes we make and the failures that we are a part of. We will always be set back on the right path and told to go and do it all over again. And the next time, we're going to be a little bit wiser than we were. So we'll grow over time. But only if we engage in the work. Only if we're not paralyzed by fear and therefore never make any decision and never do anything at all. Because it's not about our cleverness or the methods that we use or anything else. Jesus has done everything we need. All we must do is apply that reality to our circumstances every single day. And it sounds like hard work, and it is hard work. But nothing worth having is easy. We're going to find ourselves in situations where we simply have to turn to God and ask what's best for his glory and get on with things. But that is entirely what God desires. Because what he wants is you to glorify him freely for all that he's done for you and for those around you. And that's how we do it. Jesus has come to make us completely free for all we sometimes don't feel it. But it's the best way for us if we want to be his disciples, his children. When Jesus came into the world at Christmas time, the angels tell the shepherds on the hills with their flocks something joyous has happened. Now, the shepherds are absolutely terrified and don't really know what's going on. And neither would you if in the middle of the night an angelic host popped into existence and told you something amazing had just happened down the hill in a town which in the grand scheme of things isn't really all that significant within its region, never mind within the nation or the rest of the world. And yet, they go down, they see what has happened, and they leave that little scene, however saccharine it may be, and the pictures that we so often have on Christmas cards, they leave that scene with the infant Jesus celebrating and singing God's praises. They cannot believe that it's finally happened. We've waited for hundreds, for thousands of years for the Savior to come, and he's here. This is it. Everything changes from today. We change from today. And they can't help but be overcome with joy. They go telling everybody about what's happened. God himself has come to sort our problem, to rework our lives, to make them better from the foundation to the top. And it's something we could never do or even dream of. And as we celebrate this Christmas, let's do so with joy, however hard our circumstances may be, because Jesus has taken away our sin. And if we ask him, we can be forgiven. And follow in his way. He is conquering the world around you. So that you can live in it and glorify him in every circumstance. He has made you completely.
Let's pray together and give thanks to God. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for Christmas time. We give you thanks for Jesus come into the world. And Lord God, we want to confess that very often at Christmas time it is a routine for us. Because it's every year and there are so many things to do and we get lost in the busyness of it all. And we know that we are to speak and sing and pray about joy come into the world and yet sometimes it, it, it isn't. Lord, we're sorry about that. This is the single greatest truth, the most wonderful reality in all the history of this universe. And so, Lord God, this morning we ask that you would fill us with joy. Lord, some of us are going through really hard times at the moment. We don't know what the future will hold. We don't know where we're going. And, Lord, some of us are really afraid of that. And so we ask that you would bless those of us in that situation with a real sense of not just your presence, but what your presence in our lives actually means, that we belong to you through what Jesus has done already for us. Lord God, we ask that you would give us the joy of our salvation. Lord, to those of us who are doing really well at the moment and we just think everything's great, Lord, we ask that you would encourage us to see the source of that greatness is not that everything is going well, it's that Jesus sits in the middle of everything. And however good things are, they are never better than when we're with him, when we're focusing upon him, loving him, serving him, learning more about him and what he's already done for each one of us. Lord God, we ask all this, that you might have us grow and mature as believers. So Lord God, lead us out into this coming week and bless us with joy at Christmas time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.